Welcome to another episode of Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karis. Karis on Crime explores criminal justice issues and cases in the news. And as always, I welcome your feedback, your questions, and your ideas. And today's guest is one of your ideas. Now, you can post your questions or ideas on social media. My Twitter handle is at Beth Karis. And my Facebook page is my name, Beth Karis. So today's guest is Matt Zarella, and I'm pleased that Matt Zarella is joining me, and it was a a guest idea that I interview him. Matt Zarella is a search and rescue and human remains master trainer. Uh, He's a retired, with canines, with dogs. Uh, He's a retired sergeant from the Rhode Island State Police, where he had a career of 25 years, but he is still working with his own business, training dogs, and he knows everything about training dogs for various tasks in the search and rescue, as well as finding human remains. This is the work of law enforcement, of the media. He works at the federal, local, state level, uh, and he travels all over the world, not just all over the country. So welcome, Matt Zarella. Well, good morning, Beth, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So how in the world did you get involved in this expertise, which is so fascinating? (laughs) Well, uh, it wasn't anything I invented, and I appreciate the introduction, too. You were, you were uh, uh, overly kind. I certainly don't know everything, but uh, I have had some unique experiences, and um, my business is, is largely devoted toward sharing that information and passing it on to others so they can go forth and, and do good things. Um, getting started, uh, it, it's a long story, but I'll, uh, it, it's not an uncommon one. Uh, I was always interested in working with dogs as a kid. Um, I loved animals. Uh, we had dogs growing up. Um, I just needed to find a job that I liked or loved that would incorporate working with dogs. And I'm a military guy. You know, I served in the Marine Corps. Uh, I served in the Army National Guard for a little while after that. And I loved the discipline uh, of the military. Um, but I wanted also to, to live a, a civilian life. And um, law enforcement, as I began getting a little older, seemed like a, a great suit for me. The um, trick was getting into uh, a department that I really wanted to, to be uh, affiliated with, and that ended up being the Rhode Island State Police. It took five years for me to, to make it, uh, multiple times trying, but finally in 1990 I made it, and um, I began my, my trek to incorporate canines into the state police. I... Um, I noted that they didn't have a search and rescue program at the time I came on the job, and so that kind of gave me the idea of maybe we could get something started here in Rhode Island. There was, uh, really, there was, uh, if you go back to 1978 when I was in high school, uh, there was a horrific uh, abduction and murder of uh, three young Girl Scouts from the state of Oklahoma. And I remember watching that on the news uh, and wondering, well, how could anyone do this you know, to another human being, never mind uh, a child. Um, and then no one in my family, you know, could, could adequately explain it. I remember my father sat me down after I had cut the article out of the newspaper, and I, I'd been dwelling on it and dwelling on it, and he knew I was disturbed over it, and he said, you know, son, sometimes bad things happen to good people, and there's no real explanation. Um, and with that, you know, I... I put the papers away, and um, I began to grow up and realize that I wanted to do something in this world to make it a better place uh, than when I came into it. 
And here in Rhode Island, little old Rhode Island, you know, uh, with the, the great state police that we have here uh, and the wonderful traditions that we have, um, we didn't have, at least at that time, uh, an actual canine unit or search and rescue program. And so by 1990, I came on the job. Um, shortly thereafter, there was another horrific murder in our state where uh, a family of three, uh, Ernest Emily and Alice Brendel, were murdered. Uh, by a family friend, and their bodies were were buried and um, were undiscoverable for many weeks. I remember the case because detectives were working out of my barracks uh, trying to solve it. And we had borrowed canine resources from other states to assist us. But, you know, how long can you borrow a resource from another state? There are always issues. There's travel. There's overtime. There's, they're needed in their own state. And so uh, their remains went undiscovered and i had just um for a long time and i had just um gritted my teeth and said this is it we're going to do something whether i have to do it myself and finally uh, a woman who was walking her pet dog in an area a field uh area where they were originally looking for those bodies heard she had a little pet little dog and it began scratching the ground in an area that she knew had been searched uh, because she lived there, and uh, she noticed a white powdery substance in, mixed in with the earth, and um, she thought that was suspicious, called police. Sure enough, uh, the bodies were discovered that way. Uh, that white substance was lime. What, what was um, that white substance? It was lime. It was mm-hmm. lime. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the most horrible things about it, you know, was, uh, was the child um, was... Uh, it was difficult to determine the uh, cause of death. It was. It became public later that uh, she had been drugged and buried alive, and that was um, probably one of the most horrific crimes I had ever um, not worked on myself, but been in company with those who were working. And and between those two cases, the one in 1978 and from Oklahoma, and that one, I just decided I'm going to do it myself. If the state police won't um, help me get started, because um, they weren't. Although they thought it was a nice idea, they said it's, it's never going to happen here, you know. So I went and sought a reputable, uh, one of the most, if not uh, the most reputable master dog trainer in that field um, in my lifetime, uh, Mr. Andrew Redman, uh, who wrote the Cadaver Dog Handbook, along with two other fa- folks. Uh, Mr. Redman agreed to train me, you know, as a, as a volunteer. You know, I, I, I paid him as, a, as any other uh, uh, subcontract award or someone who's seeking training outside of of, of a, a work for workforce area, and uh, he got me started. And from there, um, I learned how to do you know many different areas of search and rescue and human remains detection uh, training for canines. Well, where was that training? What state? Well, you know, uh, uh, while I was working as a volunteer, the first uh, year of doing this. Uh, on, on the state police, doing it on my own time was done in southern Rhode Island and in uh, in Connecticut, uh, where near where he lived. You know, I would travel to him, or he'd meet me halfway somewhere in a state park or a um, management area or somewhere where there was, you know, we we would be undisturbed and we could work, um, you know, freely. So, so let's talk about the training training of a dog. You're training them to either pick up a person scent or decomposition, cadaver sense, or what? Yes. Well, you know, if we're going to talk about 
human remains detection, as it's referred to now, most affectionately, HRD. You know, when I first started, we, we called them body dogs. And then from there, you know, cadaver dogs, which I think was most appropriate. But, you know, now uh, human remains detection seems to be the way to go, or crime scene, as some call them. Um, you know, you ask, how is that done? I mean, well, it's done... It's done differently than what you would do if you were training a dog or that same dog to find a live person, you know, or that same dog to find uh, a weapon or explosives or narcotics. I mean, every every discipline, um, you have, you know, a different scent picture to teach, uh, a different scent pattern. Um, it just so happens in human remains detection, you know, you have to use um, something that's going to resemble a human body. You know, so that the dog gets the full scent picture. So what do you use? <laughs> well, um, there are, first and foremost, there are pseudochemicals uh, that we often use. Um, we, you know, they're expensive, but they're easy to, easy to get uh, and to handle and to, uh, to store. Um, but quite often we use, uh, we'll use blood. Uh, you know, we'll use decomposition fluids. Uh, we'll use um, grave dirt. Grave dirt is a very, very um, reliable scent source to use when teaching these dogs how to find human remains, simply because um, when a body decomposes in the ground, you know, once that body's removed, uh, the earth below it uh, is saturated with all the, the chemical byproducts that you need to detect the human body. You know, you don't need... Believe it or not, I have people often ask, you know, do you have a, do you use a, what do you use us? You know, and they're always talking about thinking in their minds of something visual that they can actually describe. But in truth, you don't need any of that. Um, and the, some of it is illegal to possess in some states. So um, certainly grave dirt, you know, or if you draw a vial of blood from your arm, or if you have... Um, you know, uh, rags and, and towels that may have been used uh, in an autopsy, and you can obtain some of that material before it gets thrown away uh, from a medical examiner. These are all excellent things you can use to to imprint your dog to detect human remains. Human teeth, great thing to use. You know, I, I um, track my nieces and nephews down all the time when they're losing a tooth so I can scoop it up and, and uh, put it in a, in a, in a jar and, and save it for training. Interesting. So, so fascinating. Uh, so once a dog knows the scent, and I mean, I'm assuming that these various products, whether it's blood or grave dirt or decomposition fluid or a tooth, they, they're not all the same odor, are they? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, to say they're not the same odor would probably be not the way I would put it. I would say that they have you know, there are certain chemical byproducts that are present in human decomposition. Um, to date, over 400 of them have been uh, actually identified in laboratory results. Uh, what they all are, I couldn't tell you. You'd have to ask a chemist. But I just know that when using this material, either in individual, large or small amounts, or mixing it up, uh, it works, and it works really well. Um, so I think... Uh, to answer your question more plainly, I think that each and every one of those scent sources that I mentioned have um, what you need in it to detect the body. It's just that um, when you have um, 
multiple scent sources. You can do what I call um, introduce the dog to the full spectrum of scent. In other words, there are uh, anywhere from five to six steps in the decomposition of a human body. You know, you have fresh, you have bloat, uh, you have um, liquefaction, mummification, skeletization, uh, to name five. And you want to introduce your dog to all those stages, you know, if you can, in order to really get them well-rounded and get them used to it. I mean, there are some dogs that folks train uh, just to find what we call the above-surface deposit. You know, someone may may be on a hike somewhere and, and meet their demise in some way and fall to the ground and and expire. And that person, you know, several days later may be found by a cadaver dog um, because they're no longer giving off the odor of live human scent. You know, the body has now uh, begun the process of decomposition and therefore the scent picture changes. However, that same dog, if not introduced properly to um, buried bodies and uh, mummificated bodies or uh, liquefied bodies, or, or at least that the um, samples of it in some way, you know, they may miss it. You know, so there's more training that goes involved in what we call clandestine graves type search. You know, looking for the old, the old cases. Some of the cases that you've um, done research on yourself, as I've seen on your podcast, you know, uh, have resulted in what would have been um, needed in looking for those bodies. You know, a dog that has used to finding something older, uh, maybe uh, more uh, decomposed. You know, I mean, in some cases. Bodies have been found in the ground after hundreds of years. Are are dogs trained for a particular area? Like, like if you're going to train a dog for human remains detection, does that dog not get trained on finding a live person? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, no, you can you can you can add more scent disciplines to your dog. It's just, you have to be careful because the more you add, you know, the more you have to maintain. And um, if you don't do this, you know, with real precision, your dog can get confused. Now, I say that, but I say that with caution because we, we very often, I know here in Rhode Island, the search and rescue teams that we have, uh, as well as the state police and law enforcement, they they want to get the most bang for their buck. So they do what we call cross-training. And uh, they'll cross-train the dog for, for a live person search. And uh, in many cases, that same dog for body search or for human remains detection. And the reason they can do that is because the scent is quite different. You know, when you're looking for a live person, you know, the the scent that you're giving off is very much different than when you're seeking the odor of decomposing gases, you know, methane and sulfide and sulfurs and um, things of that nature versus um, if you go by Saratok's theory, you know, whose book came out in 1972, you're talking about skin rafts that flake off the body while you're still alive. Your skin as an organ sheds microscopic layers of skin all the time. And this skin uh, cell process is... Uh, what your dog is detecting while you're alive, in addition to the mixture of your diet, your perfumes, your uh, you know all the other things that make up who you are, your DNA. So this whole process affects you and your scent while you're living. But when you're dis- which is, which is why a dog can dis- disseminate you from me. 
mm-hmm. know, in other words, if we're tracking a trail uh, along a, uh, a path where a lot of people have, have walked, but we've imprinted the dog on a scent article from a specific person, that dog can can rule out and, and ignore the scent of everyone else and just focus on the scent of the person who it's been imprinted to. So let's... When, let's, when uh, you die, it's different. When you die, everyone smells the same. Got it. Okay, <laughs> so, so regarding a live person, eliminate, like, lotions and perfume and deodorant and all that. Does mm-hmm. each human being emit a unique scent? Yes, they do. And a lot of it... Um, a lot of it... You know, the, uh, depends on your ethnicity, too, uh, where you're from in the world. You know, um, your, uh, you know your, your heritage, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, your nationality, if you will. You know, all that comes into play. Sure, some folks have strong, uh, some folks may emanate stronger odor than others. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and... It's all very, very interesting. It's all part of theory, you know, and it's and it it can change, you know. I mean, there are some things that are proven outright, um, and they're not undisputable. You know, other factors um, are still theorized, and your best people to ask are those in the field that are doing it every day. Sure. So let me ask you: once the dog is trained, let's say it's a human remains detection dog, primarily. How do you know if your dog is alerting? See, my knowledge of the use of dogs comes from the courtroom. And they're one of two. They're either human remains detection, cadaver dogs, or they're looking, they're trailing dogs. They're looking for a person and they're alerting in certain areas. So, like, and and the alert that I'm aware of is the dog sits down. All right. Is that is that basically what it is? And 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 is there a s- subjectivity in determining if there's an alert? Because I've seen it challenged in courtrooms, like, oh, the dog handler said it was an alert, but others disagree. Yeah, that you know, that's that's a, a fantastic question. Um, and if there were any, if if it were, I suppose, if it were up to the handlers, you know, we, we'd all say we, we need to speak the same language, but. Uh, what makes that so difficult in, in court cases is the variables. You know, every handler's training is different. You know, there are no, there is no one standard to uh, train your dog to. You know, there are many different ones around the around nationally and internationally, depending on where you live and what you train your your dog to do, how far you want to go with it. Um, but ultimately, uh, it's it, it's a it's a very good question for uh, the uh, the defense to throw up uh, when a dog handler takes the stand. Um, so you ask me, you know, what is an alert? Well, uh, actually, what when I teach alert is actually uh, alert behavior. That's the dog's body language telling you that it it has the odor that it's been trained to detect, but it's still looking for the origin. So, in other words, you may see a dog's body get more rigid as it comes into scent. Uh, it, you know, the tail may do things like stand straight up or straight out. You may hear, you know, the stacking, breathing. Narcotic dogs, uh, that's very prevalent with, with them because they're working in so close. They can hear the dog's breathing change. Uh, they can see the body language change in that dog. That's all what we call alert behavior. It's the trained indication that... Uh, 
we train our dogs to to become as bomb-proof, if you will, as possible. And that's where we get into the sit, the down, uh, the bark, um, the dig. It's 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 a response that we teach our dogs to display to us when they have gone as far as they can go, where they've either found the the source, you know, the spot where the body is buried, or they've worked it out as best they can and they can no longer um, do any more. You know, they may just give you the down or the sit or the dig just to signify I've got it and this is the best I can do. This is the closest I can get. And so this is what we, we ultimately want our dogs to do, but we know in reality um, it, it happens um, far more infrequently, you know, than, than frequently simply because in reality, you know, in the real world, um, it, you have no control of the scenario. You know, and it's totally unknown. In training, you know, we train uh, a lot of times on known sources so we can kind of put the dog to the test and make sure that the dog's not fooling us. Uh, but we also like to do unknown so that we can make it as realistic as possible. And that's where training comes in. You know, if your training is, is really, really good um, and you're a good actor and you can, you can, the dog doesn't learn to read you, you know, and to figure out when you think you've got it, and therefore give you the response you want in order to uh, uh, to re- retain their reward, then you can really go places, you know, especially if your dog really likes to work. So what is, I, well, what is considered um, an acceptable accuracy rate? Like, I mean, I assume dogs aren't 100% accurate, but what's right. acceptable, 90 95%? I, I don't know if I can answer that question because... Um, Cases have been won uh, with the use of body dogs, and no bodies have been found, and they still win. So how do you how do you say, well, that's 100 percent? You you don't have a body to show for it, but you may have had you, you may have had a situation where, and I've had these cases in my own career, where your dog indicates indicates well um, a good sit down indication. You know, I, I prefer passive, so. In my cases, that's what I would get from my dogs, and then maybe we we pull pull me out of there and bring somebody else in with a with a dog um, that didn't see what I did, uh, didn't have any of the information, and went on ahead and searched um, that area as well as others to see if to make everything fair um, and come up with the same results. Yeah, now you have to say, well, why are these dogs alerting here? Um, you know, I can say as an as a teacher in this that, you know, there are certain um, elements in the environment that can fool a well trained dog. That there are, um, and and I I say that cautiously because the dog needs to be well trained first of all, um, and secondly, you know, so that I I don't sound like my dogs are one hundred percent, which they're not. Um, they can be fooled, but more than not. That more than likely they won't be. I mean, things like sewer gas. You know, people claim they have trouble working around areas where there's a lot of sewer gas or discharge or areas where there's a lot of decomposing um, matter, like in swamps or stagnant water or uh, real, you know, you ever walk, walk in a mucky, murky area and you smell that rotten egg odor? Right, sulfur. You know, you know that's all decomposing, you know, organic matter. And, and, and those chemicals are present in human decomposition, um, which is what makes 
you know, a human remains detection is so unique from any other discipline um, that you will ever do with a dog. Our sensors does not stay the same. It continuously changes. As, your body de- as the body decomposes, it changes. It goes into different stages. I mean, if you were to bury an explosive device and leave it in the ground for 10 years and come back, uh, you're going to find an explosive device. If you bury a kilo of cocaine, um, uh, you know, uh, as it's wrapped in, the, in plastic and things, you come back, you, that's what you have. You try that with a body. I don't care if you wrap it or not. You're not going to find. You're not going to have it in in the anywhere near the condition it was when you put it in the ground. It's going to it's going to rapidly decompose, especially up here in the east where there's so much acid in the soil, and it's and the the scent is going to spread in the ground as groundwater carries it away, and it's going to from what would have been a small area search now. Uh, ten years later, you you may be faced with a much larger area search because scent has been drawn up with vegetation. It has been carried down slope with groundwater. It has just gone into the soil uh, and and dispersed, and that makes our our job far more difficult. It's time for a break. You're listening to Karis on Crime. I'm your host Beth Karis. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karis, and I'm speaking with Matt Zarella. He's a search and rescue and human remains canine master trainer, retired from the Rhode Island State Police after 25 years, and he continues to train dogs, not just around the country, but around the world. So let me ask you about a case that I had covered in 2011. Well, I covered it between 2008 and 11. The trial was... 2011. It was the case of Casey Anthony. She was accused of killing her toddler daughter. And uh, the prosecution was successful in getting introduced into evidence odor of decomposition as smelled by humans, not dogs, because a human remains detection dog was used and alerted to the trunk of a car. Yes, I remember that that the defendant drove, and, and then they captured some air, and it was analyzed. And it, I remember the testimony that there were like 400 chemicals or compounds in human decomposition, and this testing could only determine a, a handful of them at the time, and it's ongoing testing at the body farm in Tennessee or something like that. In any event, I mean, it was allowed by the judge, but it, it wasn't really, I mean, she got acquitted. I guess it wasn't really credited by the jury. They just didn't know exactly when that little girl died and how, and so they weren't going to convict the mother of anything, frankly. But um, I'm just wondering, like, odor of decomposition as smelled by dogs versus humans. I mean, do dogs have a much more sensitive nose than humans? They must, right? Oh, without without question. I mean, depending on what study you read, anywhere from uh, 100 to 100,000 times stronger. You know, they're... um, their olfactory sensory mucosa is far larger than ours and can, uh, you know, I recently read where you can take, you know, a drop of water in, in the side. They can smell, you know, a um, sensor the size of a drop of water if you were to drop it into an Olympic-sized swimming pool. You know, they'll be able to to detect that one drop of water that, that um, if it were a scent material. So thinking thinking of it in that those terms, it's it's absolutely incredible. I personally, I try not to can it that way. You know, I just know that their noses are far greater than ours, and I 
I've learned the weaknesses my dogs have and those that I train, and I learn where the strengths are. And uh, one of the things I never doubt is their their abilities. And I think our case uh, in Vietnam was was a clear depiction of that. Um, although there were others, that's one that really comes to mind. What, what is that case? Well, in 2003, uh, we were uh, recruited by the United States military to to um, participate in a first time ever uh, experiment where they wanted to take proven cadaver dogs. Um, and handlers to Vietnam to look for missing Americans, those POWs who never returned home. Um, this is, of course, something that the military does constantly all over the world looking for our, our war dead. Uh, the use of dogs, though, was something new because in that region of the world, the witnesses were getting old. Uh, you know, for to be a 70-year-old Vietnam veteran here, uh, you know, you're in far better physical condition than many of those same-aged uh, veterans that are living, you know, uh, in Vietnam, you know, North Vietnamese and the South, South Vietnamese. And some of the, the farmers and those that were witnesses of burials or um, assassinations or, the, you know, the, the murder or the, the killing of one of the, of the POWs, either in combat or in the prison camps, they were getting old and, and they were having difficulty uh, keeping the percentage of following up with these stories and actually finding anything. So they thought dogs might help, and they really wanted to give it a shot. So we were asked to do that, and um, and I was very honored to, to go forward with it and to, to prepare for it. And um, in 2003, we went over there you know, after a lengthy, a lengthy process of getting approvals to, from the state police civilian side to borrow uh, so the military could borrow resources. Um, and then to train for it and to go over there with the proper veterinarian um, and military staff for support. But once in country, we were, we were uh, presented with 12 cases, and uh, the military and the, the anthropologists decided which cases we would, we would try. And uh, the very first case was a um, case where a pilot was shot down in 1965, he was flying an F-5 Freedom Fighter in southern Vietnam. Uh, Captain David J. Phillips Jr. Uh, was shot down and missing, and uh, his plane had long since disappeared, as they use up all the resources there. You know, but villagers remembered the plane coming down, and they they had um, given given uh, to interpreters, you know, the stories how the the villagers had buried his remains, and they had been dug up with animals, and they had reburied them, and they were dug up again, you know, over many, many years. And anthropologists weren't finding anything at the test pits where they were looking, so they gave us a chance to look look at that case first. Um, so we did a little investigating of our own, you know, myself and my veterinarian friend, knowing my veterinarian, knowing my dogs very well. You know, we sort of profiled our area thinking where the plane went down and where the anthropologists had been digging. And we, I did a search of my own uh, with a one-year-old German Shepherd who had certified for the first time to be out there, and, uh, and my, my veteran nine-year-old German Shepherd female, uh, who I trusted the most. And believe it or not, the nine-year-old, as we were searching through the jungle, this is triple canopy jungle, extremely thick, very difficult to see, uh, lots of distractions, you know, uh, there's a lot of animals and, um, you know, 
other things in the jungle that just you don't see here, you know, that can can dis- distract the dog. I was, we were also worried about exploded, explosive ordinances that have been left behind, uh, you know, nine different versions of poisonous snakes, and we had no venom, anti-venom or anything like that, so we were pretty much on our own. Anyway, the dog, the dogs did uh, did find an area. To my surprise, my first dog, uh, as we came into an area outside of where the anthropologists were digging, um, and they she gave a sort of a lukewarm indication. It wasn't very convincing, but I noted the change in her body language. The alert behavior was different than anything I had seen anywhere else uh, when we uh, in that area. So I brought the young dog in, <clears throat> and after. A short time, uh, he was a real spitfire. He went into that area. He first they searched some negative areas, the areas that the dogs weren't interested in earlier, and uh, he had nothing. And then as they eased him into the area that my older dog showed um, showed odor response, uh, he went into a full alert and looked right at me and said, "Dad, it's here." And I scratched my head and I said, "Oh boy, these guys are never going to believe me." <laughs> and uh, so I, I sort of. You know, working them a little more, I sort of was able to identify uh, a spot, you know, uh, maybe 10 meters by 10 meters. And the anthropologists, I advised them, and they came and looked at it, and uh, they agreed to excavate it. And, um, you know, we went on to other cases. You know, they'd load us, load us up into a uh, old Russian military helicopter and send us off to another case. And uh, we worked case after case after case until the mission was over. It was a uh, month prepping and then a month in country. So so where both of the dogs alerted, was that where the remains were? Well, as the story goes, we were getting ready to leave. It was a month later. We were getting ready to leave Vietnam. Uh, we had not, had not heard of any anything conclusive from any of the cases we worked. The majority of them we, we, I got were negative, uh, for, at least with the dogs. We didn't get any indications uh, that there was anything there. And some of the some of the Vietnamese witnesses, when they saw the dogs, um, gave up, gave the whole thing up and said, well, actually, there was nothing here at all. We, we, once they saw the dogs, they decided not to play anymore, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but uh, I bumped into an anth- the anthropologist that I saw at the scene uh, in Ho Chi Minh City, and he said to me, hey, did you ever hear what happened on that case? And he referred to the first one, and I said, no, we haven't heard anything. And uh, he said, well, we found what we believe are osseous human remains, including uh, life support and uh, pieces of uniform and a pocket knife. And uh, I said, really? I said, well, that's amazing. So that went right up the chain of command and and right up to the Army staff, to the general in Hawaii, and they were very excited about it. And it wasn't several, it wasn't for, um, well, the remains were, were brought back to Hawaii for identification through mitochondrial DNA, which is as you know, widely used now in, in forensic cases. Mm-hmm. And um, the remains were positively identified as those of um, relating to the family of the missing pilot. Wow, so what a story. So we couldn't find out for several years. <laughs> I, I didn't know, I didn't, wasn't notified of any of this. I just followed up on the case several years later and was told, yeah, yeah, it was, they were repatriatized and returned to the family. Um, never heard about any of the other cases, though. Don't know for sure, one way or the other, but uh, that's okay. You know, well, uh, my job was to do the best I could out there, and the rest is up to the military. Right. You know, Congratulations. No they can do it. Now, tell me, where do you get the dogs? 
to train? Well, that's a great question. Um, I've developed a reputation over the years because I started as a volunteer with, with my first dog that was my own pet. Um, you know, I was a plumber's apprentice, and I, I had purchased my great, first greatest Swiss mountain dog in 1989, and we were going, doing jobs together, and he was a slow-moving, uh, fun-loving dog that didn't like to work. But he was just supposed to be my companion. Well, this is the dog that, in 1991, we, we pushed into service to to be a search and rescue dog. So um, I got a reputation for training uh, uh, dogs that folks had as pets, uh, or um, more notably going to uh, pounds and rescues and picking dogs out of there that had um, little time left. You know, they were going to be put down for various reasons, and I would screen them and and try to turn them into search and rescue dogs for folks. And, are, uh, that's what I do. Are there a, t- a particular breed of dog? No, these dogs, um, majority of them uh, that I picked, uh, you know, over the years were mongrels. Uh, you know, they may have had some some working pedigree in them, like German Shepherd or Labrador Retriever or Border Collie, things like that, which was great. But a lot of times we didn't know what was what else was in them. We just would screen them, you know, as they were, and try to, you know, try to make them into search and rescue dogs. I and mean, it takes a lot of work. It's more work than it would be if you were getting a dog from a reputable breeder that was already screened from a working line. Uh, and, um, you know, of course, you're going to pay, unless it's donated, you're going to pay good money. You know, my, my department uh, didn't have that kind of money to spend and I was still trying to prove that dog, dog, the dogs could do the work. And every time I'd make a find, uh, I'd ask for some other piece of equipment, you know, something I needed that that propel me into the next level. And um, these are the dogs that, you know, I did have German Shepherds but I uh, that I worked in my career, but they were donated. You know, one was from a pound, and one and it was being re- needed to be rehomed because the family was moving, relocating due to to the job uh, change, and, um, you know, they had never worked before, you know, my the, one of my best females was from a pet store, that someone had bought it and wanted to donate it to me, and, um, you know, just out of the blue, so, I, you know, I felt bad for the dog, because they were like, well, we don't want to keep it, and we've already bought it, so, you know, I took her in, and she ended up being the one that went to Vietnam with me, you know, so... Uh, and the mail was from a pound. So, um, you know, that's just how I do things. I just I just feel that, you know, I have the time, fortunately, and the, my at the time the Rhode Island State Police were very, very uh, cooperative in regards to that. They said, if, if you get this dog at no cost to us, and you take as much time as you need to train it. We're not going to, you know, not going to put you on a schedule. You do it in interim with your, with your duties as a, as a trooper, a road trooper, or as years later, a, a barrack sergeant, um, and finally canine commander. But so I had to work extra, you know, at a lot of times or on my own time. But uh, we also um, did it during canine in-service training. You know, just when the dogs were ready, they were ready. So that was good. That was a good thing. If I was pushed into a class of six weeks or eight weeks, you know, I, these, a lot of these dogs may not have made it in that amount of time. Right, right. So is there now an established search and rescue canine unit with the Rhode Island State Police? 
certainly is, yep. And we've got some great, great troopers that are, are running it uh, and that are uh, in it. And, uh, you know, when I started, the state police had two narcotic, three narcotic dogs. That was it. And those dogs were not attached to any specific unit. Uh, you know, one was on the road uh, with a with a trooper. One was with an NCO, and another was in the truck squad. And another, you know, they were just they were wherever the troopers were going. The, the dogs weren't you didn't you weren't stationed anywhere specifically just because you had a dog. You know, and uh, there was no search and rescue program. There was no patrol dog program. Um, when I left, uh, with the help of some other dedicated troopers over the years, we had established. 18 canine uh, team unit uh, with uh, human remains detection dogs, uh, search and rescue live person dogs, disaster search dogs, including um, FEMA equivalency level, live live and human remains detection. We had arson dogs. We have um, explosive detection dogs, uh, along with gun detection dogs, and uh, most notably a... Um, I call it computer device detection, um, but dogs that are trained to find media devices, so that uh, you know a lot of the uh, our, our um, homicides, sex crimes, um, are often searching homes with warrants for small device devices like that that may have information that pertain to their case. So, well, what kind of odor do those devices give off? That's interesting. Oh, well, I, um, I can't divulge that information. <laughs> <laughs> I can just say that there is, there is an odor, that there is a chemical that has been identified Wow, um, that's common in, the, in those devices. And um, I mean, I, I couldn't pronounce it even if I told you. It's a big, long name. And actually, the Connecticut State Police, uh, their crime lab, um, we have to give them credit. They developed the first one only uh, right before I retired. It was around 2014, uh, and they they trained two. Uh, their unit trained two. They were going to give one to the Massachusetts State Police, and they were going to keep one, and they were going to do a little a little study on their success rate. And the Massachusetts State Police, uh, at the last minute, decided not to take the dog because it hadn't been hadn't been proven enough yet. So. Um, uh, they offered it to Rhode Island, and I, when I was asked if I wanted it, I said, absolutely. I said, Connecticut was on the forefront of bomb detection, human remains detection. If they got their hands in it, it's got to be good. So uh, we took it. We screened for a handler. We assigned the handler to the dog, and they're doing fantastic. And now uh, those dogs are starting to sprout up everywhere. I think the Today Show had a special uh, on it a while back. They had somebody on it from Washington State that had a... Uh, uh, a uh, computer device detection or, or media device detection, and so they're, they're starting to perk up. Courts are accepting the um, the relevance of the canines. The science is uh, is solid, and the dogs are doing it. Good news. That is great news. So let me ask you a question about crime scenes because I um, covered a case years ago that is currently on appeal. In fact, the 15-year anniversary of the woman's disappearance is coming up this uh, December 2017. And it's a case of Lacey Peterson, a woman who was seven and a half, eight months pregnant when she disappeared on Christmas Eve in 2002. Her husband is now on death row in California, Scott Peterson. Okay, so one of the issues on appeal in his case is that the scent dogs, trailing dogs, too, were used. One that picked up Lacey's scent as a live person. I think it was a, it was a 
not a human remains detection dog, as I recall. Uh, and the dog alerted at uh, a marina in the San Francisco Bay where Scott had launched a boat and it is believed, and the jury believed, that he dumped the bodies. The bodies washed ashore three and a half months later. I mean, because the, the, uh, the fetus had burst from the womb. And so they, they washed ashore separately a day apart, they were found. Okay, so the dog alerts, and the issue now on appeal is that the police told the dog handler where Scott had launched the boat. So the dog handler may have detected an alert when it really wasn't an alert. Moreover, the dog doesn't have a great success rate. So they said, you know, there wasn't proper challenging of the dog regarding success rate and that there was bias, confirmation bias, because the police told the dog handler where the boat was launched. Sure. What do you do about a confirmation bias, bias, I mean, do you try not to know too much? I mean, you were a police officer, but if you were sure. dealing with somebody who was a different handler, try not to tell them too much? Well, uh, that's exactly right. When I get involved in a case, um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, my theory is when I'm being asked to come in, or when I was being asked to come in uh, as a trooper, even with my own uh, uh, c- comrades, uh, you know, in detectives, I would say, look, don't give me any of the information relative to the case as as if I were a detective, because if you don't need another detective. What you need is a dog handler trained in this discipline of human remains detection to give you a different perspective, to give you a side that you may not even agree with, that you may not even be able to um, to understand. But that's why I'm trained to do what I do. So I don't want to know all the particulars. Just I, I usually get basic information. Obviously, you know, the area that they're interested in searching, the general area. I don't want them to walk me down a path and say, I want you to search this spot, uh, because that, that would be that detrimental. I mean, why do you need me then? Just dig it. You know, why waste my time? Um, if you have a spot you're interested in, fine, but give me a general area and let me go through it. Um, you know, as blind as I possibly can. So, um, you know, I'll get basic information. You know, the, the the size, believe it or not, things that I'm interested in are the size of the person, for example, how long they've been missing, if you suspect they're buried, how long. You know, this way I can get an idea on, you know, the rate of decomposition, how, how much of a contaminated scene I may have. I've had bodies that have been doused with acetone, um, so as to throw the dog off, uh, burned, you know, beyond recognition, um, you know, and thrown in swamps, and then six years later asked to come by and try to find it, you know, uh, which we did. You know, all sorts of different scenarios uh, where things have been done to these bodies to to um, disguise them. So one of the things I don't want to know is what they think, just where you want me to search. And then the rest of the information comes later so I can make my search report sound um in sound that uh, makes sense to the reader. When my searches are done and, and I um, re- reveal my findings, then um, the rest of the information can come in so that I can make more sense to it. But certainly when I search, I don't want to know those things. Now, in that case, you know, that's a problem for the dog handler, certainly. And the dog handler may have done a perfectly good job that, that his, his or her dog may have reliably tracked to the marina. Um, and it may have been right, 
but unfortunately to to try to explain that you know beyond a reasonable doubt um when you when you have certain information like that it makes it difficult and it creates doubt in the jury's mind as well mm. So let's, I know you've given me so much of your time already. You've been very generous with your time today. But let's talk, let's talk about the documentary that you are the star of. It's called Search Dog, and it's not uh, widely distributed yet. It's been uh, shown in some film festivals. Search Dog was several years in the making. So what can you tell us about it? Yes, ma'am. Um, well, uh, Search Dog was the brainchild of a local... Um, uh, professor at the University of Rhode Island who teaches film. She started looking into um, to, to to she had a curiosity of search dogs in general and had requested permission from the state police to attend some of our in-service trainings to watch these dogs work, get to know some of the people that do it, and um, you know take down a little some notes and uh, you know maybe she was going to do something with that information in a classroom setting <clears throat> back at, at the university. Uh, but uh, once introduced to her, you know, I reluctantly agreed because I, you know, we, we often don't like folks that, you know, don't share our culture, if you will, to come in and watch the training because, you know, you never know how they're going to perceive what you're doing, you know, and, uh, um, you know, they could have a, they could not understand and go back and, and give a bad a bad report, you know, or do a, if they're doing an article, for example, or, you know, say something that either we didn't, we didn't say or, or misinterpret what we're doing. But I, I, I agreed to let her in. You know, I was, I was very, uh, very, um, proactive with the, with the media and I, they helped me get the story straight and I helped them, uh, with the, the right information. So, uh, it's a two way street. So, um, she came, she observed, and she realized, gee, you know, in watching these dogs work, disaster work and and, and uh, cadaver work, missing persons and talking with the handler, she realized there's so much more of a story here than just what she was expecting. Uh, the, how, how passionate the people are that do this, and not just the troopers, but we also train with volunteers here in Rhode Island. Um, we, um, we use them, you know, when we need to augment our our low numbers and search and rescue when there's a big search. So we want to make sure that they're squared away. So they help us uh, and we help them. And she began to know, get to know me a little better and realize that, you know, there's a story with this guy, you know, starting this search and rescue program on his own against the odds, if you will, you know, um, and uh, having that, I don't use the word passion. I use the word calling because for me it was a calling. I, I, I do believe that, you know, the Lord wanted me to do this to help other people. And uh, there's no other way because, you know, if I got into the weeds with you and you really heard about the, the battering you take as a young trooper trying to start something new when, you know, kid, just shut up and go get your, go get on the road and do your thing. <laughs> uh, and don't bother us with this. If we needed it, we would have had it. In 1925, when we started, you know, right. uh, it's it's really a, an incredible story, and I think that not only me but other troopers and people that were depicted in the film um, have very inspiring stories to tell. And the film doesn't just focus on me; it, it keeps coming back to my story, but then it breaks off and gets involved in in some of my students who've trained under me and gone on to do other things, and talks a little bit about 
Mr. Redman, who trained me originally, um, and gets his input. He'd be, we'd, you'd laugh when you hear what he had to say about my first dog. But um, certainly it keeps you riveted. It keeps you in your seat. You know, it's not a gory, um, um, you know, it's not trying to top anything that is going to be gross or gory. It's not about that. It's about inspiration. It's about achievement. It's about the, these beautiful animals that God gave us, you know, being used to, to help us you know, in our daily lives with some of the unfortunate situations we get involved in, uh, we end up in. And uh, it's very inspiring, and I, I really hope folks will enjoy it. Uh, and the film festival did very well. It was the audience's favorite as it traveled around to the big cities. Um, and uh, maybe it'll inspire someone to go forward and do something like this for themselves and help their communities in the future. Well, I do hope that it has wide distribution in the near future so that we can all see Search Dog. You know, Matt Zarella, this has been so inspiring. And thank you for doing so well with your calling because the world is indeed a better place because of what you've done in Rhode Island, uh, throughout the country, and now throughout the world. So I want to thank you for joining me today. It's really been interesting. Oh, you're welcome, Beth. Thank you. I mean, you're, you're, this is an A-team interview, you know. Uh, I, was, uh, I was more than, uh, than delighted when you asked me to, to be on board with it. And I appreciate what you do, bringing to light, you know, these, these the elements of crime and the people that are involved and, and what happens to them. We forget about them in the news once, they're, once the hype is over. But for you to, inv- to dig in further and follow through, that, that's fantastic because it's um, it's amazing what happens to some of these people or what doesn't happen to some of them, some of these um, folks that are convicted or are charged with the crimes. Right. Well, I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of the Kerosene Crime Podcast. I welcome your feedback. As always, your questions and ideas, you can post them on social media. My Twitter handle is at Beth Karras, and my Facebook page is my name, Beth Karras. Till the next time, be well. <laughs>